So hello and welcome to Co-Produce Care. Today we have Catherine Needham with us and she's Professor of Public Policy and Public Management at Birmingham University. Um, and I'm delighted to have you on the Co-Produce Care chat today. Thank you so much for coming on, Catherine. Thank you. Um, so it's really useful if at the beginning of our chats you could just go through who you are, what you do and what your interest is. Sure, so yeah, I'm Catherine Needham. Uh, I work at the Health Services Management Centre um, at Birmingham University and uh, a lot of my research is on different aspects of social care. So I'm particularly interested in uh, social care markets, in personalisation and personal budgets um, and um, looking at kind of different sort of models of care and care innovation. Um, so uh, yeah, a few different things on the go around those sorts of things. Great, okay. Um, so you've settled on one of the things that you're very interested in talking about is co-production and specifically co-production research what made you feel that you want to be getting into that area was there a need to co-produce or did you just happen to be interested in that particular type of research um i guess Partly it was when I joined the Health Services Management Centre, it was already a kind of centre where there was lots of exciting work going on around co-producing research. Um, and at that point, it wasn't something that I'd done before. Um, and I was just really inspired by seeing um, some of my colleagues here and what they were doing. And I think there's, um, I suppose by kind of looking at what other people were doing, it gave me a sense of kind of how it would be possible. Um, it was also kind of, I guess, um, made me much more aware of the kind of social justice elements of co-producing research that when you're doing research about um, particular kind of communities, particular communities that have often been quite marginalised and where there are some real issues around sort of power dynamics with the state and with professionals and with academics, then um, there's a real compelling reason to, um, to think about how research could be done in that kind of much more partnership way. Um, you know, I think lots of universities are uh, another kind of research bodies are waking up to that and doing more of it um, it's also I think being driven increasingly in part by research funders who are saying you know we need to have a clear evidence in your bid of how you're going to involve people with lived experience in the research that you're doing um, so I think that's I think because of some of the early work that, that people were doing to kind of make really make the case for this it's now become much more mainstream and as I say you have to in a funding bid make clear kind of how you're doing it which I think is great I think lots of it still probably isn't done awfully well because it's you know it's something which isn't uh, comes with certain kind of problems it requires thinking and working in a different kind of way and I'm not sure um, as academic researchers we've completely woken up really to, to what that entails um, but it does mean I think now there's a number of different drivers which are kind of uh, mean that more of it's happening and we should be able to kind of develop more of a kind of critical awareness of, of what works and, and what some of the barriers are. Um, so it might be quite a good uh, thing to start off with discussing what co-production in research actually is. Mm. Um, yeah I mean yeah. I'm sure there's lots of definitions available. For me it's um, involving people with lived experience in the, the topic that you're researching in um, all the sort of different elements of the research project. So first of all, I think coming up with what, what are the kind of problems and questions that we ought to be looking at in social care. So, you know, what are the kind of priorities and some of the work of say the James Lind Alliance around priority setting in social care, I think it's been really good at, at kind of um, making sure that those priorities are being set by the people who's, who are 
are kind of affected um, by the sorts of issues that are being discussed. Um, so it's partly about agenda setting. I think that's one of the bits which can be the hardest really is to be involving people at the point where, where really things are, are getting kind of determined. Um, then it's also about um, once you've kind of got your, your idea, then involving people in the research design, um, involving people in the research itself, so the fieldwork, for example, um, uh, and then once you've kind of generated some data, involving people in the analysis, in the writing, and then in the kind of sharing, dissemination, implementation of the research. So ideally, you'd want it to, you'd want it to be running through all the different uh, stages of the research process. So really, it starts off from does it start from the point of what you actually research to the research question, or is that one part where it's difficult to involve people? I think ideally it should, but often it doesn't. Um, and I think that's to some extent, um, I guess, reflects the sort of, as I said, the kind of power dynamics and also the realities of doing the research that often it'll be the academic who's sort of the first mover, who's got the kind of research question that they want to research, who understands that a particular research call has come up and, you know, maybe it would be, be nice to bid for that. Um, so often some of the kind of big kind of topic areas are, um, are being, uh, you know, already being identified. Having said that, even with a kind of topic area and maybe a particular kind of funding call in mind, um, I think it's still very much good practice to be involved in people at that early stage in uh, thinking through how you might actually address a particular question. Mm -hmm. um, I think some practical difficulties with that. So one of the things we've been kind of pushing for at the university level is making sure we've got funding available because at that point you haven't got your bid, you haven't, you haven't got your grant, um, so you, it can't be funded from that. So it's kind of making sure there's money available within uh, research organisations to, um, to get involved in, in that early stage design when the actual grant hasn't yet been won that will otherwise sort of pay for that co-production of research. And do you find in the way that you are involving people in each stage that that changes the quality of the research? Do you feel that it's better informed and better taken up because it's so, you know, it's so participatory, if you like, or does it not really make any difference or is it too early to tell? Um, I mean, I suppose there's a number of reasons why research doesn't, doesn't get taken up, but I certainly think there's, um, there's all sorts of advantages to, I think it helps you develop research which is has more kind of um, validity because I think the, the kind of uh, the insights that people with lived experience bring to the research makes it more likely that you're asking people the right questions that you're getting good data on the ground so we've one of the things we've done is involved um, people who've got experience of being uh, of using care services or of being carers involve them in the interviewing process um, and we think that generates just really good data because of the kind of um, the ability to build rapport um, and to to gain that kind of shared sense of, um, of kind of sharing experiences really that you can get through that kind of method. So I think you, you get better data. I think it encourages you when you're um, thinking about kind of what to do with the data to write it up in a way which is actually um, under, easily accessible and understandable. So you know I guess we'd ideally like to be in a world where rather than writing a plain English summary of the research that that's a much more natural way of communicating and that we kind of we all you know all of our research yeah. is kind of written in that um, much more accessible way um, and I think ideally if you've kind of done a good job um, around the co-production of research it does help with the with the implementation and, and the um, 
the fact that it connects with what some of the issues are within localities. Um, and I think particularly, although we've been talking about co-production of research with people with lived experience of care, obviously you can also co-produce research with um, people working in care services. Um, so, you know, working with local authorities, perhaps on a kind of co-production basis. And then I think if you've got their kind of buy-in, that can help with implementation. Um, having said that, there are clearly lots of issues in the care sector which get in the way of research implementation. So I think even if you've got a kind of, kind of easily communicated, um, you know, very uh, kind of powerful piece of research that everybody agrees with, that doesn't necessarily clearly mean it will be translated into action. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you wrote an article with others recently. Yes participatory research meets validated outcome measures, tensions in the co-production of social care evaluation. So there's two bits that I was interested in that title. Firstly, what is the validated outcome measures? And then secondly, what are the tensions that come up in, in doing that type of research? I presume that it's talking about the tensions within doing um, research co-productively. Yeah, so this was, um drew on a particular piece of research which we did um, uh, and particularly looking at how we might use how we might look at outcomes the outcomes of people using care services and do a comparative piece of work this was funded by the economic and social research council and we wanted to compare the outcomes of um, uh, care interventions um, based on the size of organizations so whether care provided by uh, very small organizations seem to get better outcomes than, than medium-sized and bigger organizations and we did the research in a um, uh, we did involve people although not in the not until we won the grant um, but at that stage we did involve people in working out um, how and where we were going to do the research and, and then um, as co-researchers I think what we really found from that was there was a real pressure we felt from within the kind of academic community to use validated outcome tools. So those which have been established to have a particular kind of, uh, gone through a validation process, which means that there should be an understanding that when you ask the questions, whatever setting it is, then then you're always likely to get a sort of stable answer. Um, so I just ask, so I make sure I understand. So the validated outcome measures, they are, it's just a, a standard set of measures. Yeah. Research. They're not co-produced necessarily. No, no, no. So, I mean, they, they, there may have been some co-production, you know, way back in their uh, design, mm -hmm. um, but these would be things like the ASCOT survey, so the Adult Social Care Outcomes Toolkit, which the, is run by the University of Kent, which they very kindly make freely available on their website, and you can ask it, but you have to use it in the way that it's designed, so you have to, it's got, I think, nine, nine domains, and you have to use their scoring. Um, format and if you do that you can produce data which can then be compared with other studies which have used the same toolkit so the department of health um, does a, uh, a biannual survey uh, of users of adult social care services um, and they also use that same tool so the idea is then you get that kind of comparability um, but you do have to ask the questions in exactly the way that they're on the, the survey sheet so you know it's a standardized in survey instrument i guess we would call it okay. um, and so we wanted to use that so that we could develop data which we felt would the kind of academic community and the policy um, national policy community would consider to be uh, valid data and reliable data because it would use the standardized survey but i guess what we encountered was when you then ask um 
people with lived experience to go in and, and conduct the interview for you um, was that they didn't like the people we were working with didn't like this standardized tool they found it really clunky you know you have to put numbers next to things they find that people kind of weren't necessarily interpreting the the questions um you know the, the, the questions had to be kind of reworded to kind of make them clearer which gets in the way of kind of this this idea that they're always replicable um and actually what the co-researchers wanted to do was go in and have more of a kind of conversation with yeah. the people that were interviewing and in fact that was the very reason why we'd recruited them in the first place because of that idea that they'd have more rapport um so i think we just ended up feeling that like there was a real tension which wasn't really which in literature which kind of purports to to be about kind of everybody agrees that co-production research is a great idea the national institute for health research is very supportive of it but the, the organizations like nihr are also very keen that we use these standardized tools and i think we just wanted to kind of discuss the potential tensions really and, and kind of paradoxes in that and that there's not always a very good fit yeah um you know co Co-produced research, I think, is much more about kind of emergent knowledge. You just let the interview kind of go with the flow. It's much more a kind of conversational interview. And when we tried to sort of stick a survey, a standardized survey in there, we just found it a really clunky fit. Yeah. Um, and so we, that's really what we get into in the article. I think that's um, really interesting because there's another article that somebody at Bristol University who was looking into the experiences of older people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, uh, their experiences in, in care homes. And they were, I think they were using people with lived experience in carrying out the research. And one of the feedback that they gave was that um, they were given a questionnaire to ask those people in, who were in care homes, older people in care homes, and the questionnaires just didn't do the job. But what they did manage to do um, is to go back and review the, the questionnaires and co-create them. And then they came up with having discussions with the people that they were interviewing, with the staff that they were interviewing, and became more of a dialogue rather than a questionnaire. And the because they were people with lived experience, they were able to impart their experiences of abuse because of their um, you know, sexual orientation. And that was really helpful in helping the staff understand what they were going through and they had some empathy, empathy from that um, but it was through dialogue it was through storytelling it was through reaching out to people's emotions not necessarily sort of asking very formalized questions which i think is the point that you were trying to the same situation that you had yeah 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 absolutely yeah um, yeah and i think just kind of that's the sort of tension we have to kind of live with because neither of those you know they both kind of have their benefits but they're not easy to combine yes yeah what i thought it was quite interesting is because what i was also listening to a talk by somebody called toby low i think his name yeah and he oh you know him yeah great um i'm hoping to get him on a chat as well but he talks about he criticizes the idea of outcomes and mm. outcome based commissioning and i can't remember exactly the term that he used it was all about systems and being more human um and it links in really nicely with your idea of you know that storytelling and i wonder whether in especially in research we try and increasingly through commissioning people are looking for data and numbers and that's traditionally in research that works really really well 
but when you're dealing with people and especially social care actually there's a bit of a disconnect between what the numbers show and could mean and actually how useful they are on the ground um, for one example that I always think about is the number of safeguardings or safeguarding alerts initially you would think if a service has a lot of safeguarding alerts then they're probably a really bad uh, service but um, others might come at the point where actually they've got really good um, staff team who are psychologically secure in their job and they are just able to report things more freely whereas some organizations might have very low safeguarding but just might be hiding quite a lot so that's an example where data might kind of conflict with the reality of and the experience of people whereas storytelling and the idea of a meta-narrative seems a little bit more useful in the idea of creating you know knowledge in the area of social care i don't know if you Mm, yeah I'm not sure I guess to me that's sort of they're two slightly separate things so I guess one is kind of how as academics we make sense of things like the popularity of personalization or co-production or some of these other kind of big concepts where have they come from why does everybody suddenly seem to be in favor of them um, how do they kind of work how do they garner support and that's where I think the kind of meta-narrative is kind of useful just to sort of understand the ways in which they kind of they build that kind of momentum around them through their very um, the sheer kind of malleability um, um, uh, you know that, that's a that's an advantage I suppose rather than a disadvantage whereas my understanding of kind of the work of uh, around the sort of problems of um, say uh, payment by outcomes uh, outcomes-based commissioning the work that Toby Lowe does um, it's kind of a different thing it's more of a kind of real world dilemma which is if you start to kind of pay people on the basis of outcomes then they will start to gain the system um, and you will get distortions in the system and that that's um, uh, really quite problematic and so you know we can see that in Wiltshire who moved one of the first councils to move to more of an outcomes-based commissioning approach to social care um, you know what they found was that once they started um, paying providers on the basis of outcomes then that started to change the behavior of the provider organizations and not necessarily in ways that had been anticipated um, so you're very, you know, you're very reliant on providers kind of reporting the outcomes uh, accurately. If you're taking kind of an outcomes-based approach, which is about kind of recovery and getting people away from needing um, hours, particular hours of care, then you've got to design that quite, you've got to design incentives really carefully because otherwise, the providers are basically doing themselves out of a job. Um, yeah. You know, and that's a very, you know, difficult position for a provider to find themselves in. Um, so I think what um, the kind of human learning systems that Toby Lowe and others write about uh, is focused much more on, we all agree that kind of that care and the provision of care should be about better outcomes for people, if we mean kind of more meaningful relationships and better lives and more feeling more embedded in the community, but we shouldn't be kind of paying providers on the basis of securing those. We should be kind of helping providers to innovate, to experiment, uh, and then to kind of bring the learning back and we should be developing long-term trusting relationships with partners uh, rather than the very kind of transactional contractual type of relationships that currently exist and I think we're, we're trying to so we're trying to sort of put outcomes on top of what is currently a very short-term is low trust set of relationships and that, that simply doesn't work yeah yeah um, in terms of the kind of organizations that do better in terms of um, being more co-productive or person-centered. Do you feel that you talked a little bit about the size of organizations? Um, have you 
seen in any of your research that any size of organization does better for people i know that um, smaller ld services tend to be more uh, this is i mean a couple of years ago more um rated likely to be rated outstanding than larger services that might be outdated information now but do you see the sort of same sort of thing yeah so i think what we've been interested in a few different projects has been the kind of the role of scale in care um so the, the key thing that seems to matter to people in relation to home care is is it the same person coming through my door do i know them do i trust them do they do they know me um and will they come when they say they're going to come um but those are some of the you know they've just heard that again and again and again as i'm sure any kind of care researcher has um and i guess what we found was the organizations that were kind of best able to deliver that were the small organizations um now that the study that we did was a small scale study so you know be, be kind of wary of, of kind of generalizing from that um but it certainly does mesh with the cqc findings around uh the uh the quality um does seem to be better in smaller providers um, and that has led them to uh, put limits on the size of learning disability providers um, because of a, of a feeling that um, we should we there is a compelling case that they should be small and I guess that that kind of to me generates a question of well why would we do that for um, certain kinds of residential services um, or, uh, accommodation based services anyway and not for others um, so not for those for older people for example and we know that the growth in the older people's market is in larger care homes um, you know there are clear economies of scale we're in a very cash-strapped system you can understand kind of how that dynamic works but um, I think I have sort of concerns about how far the kind of lived experience is good in a kind of large travel lodge style care home right yeah is there anything you've you've researched or heard or read that kind of doubt is there any research on that actually that the, the lived experiences of people in different sizes of um care homes that, that you know of because i think that would be quite interesting so there's a project just finished um but led by stephanie ettelt at the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine on personalization in care homes okay. um and one of the things that um although I'm not sure if they specifically address the question of scale. They do talk about um, different models of care home and say, so some care homes are like hotels. Those are the kind of more kind of high end, often self-funded based care homes. Yeah. Some care homes are maybe feel more like hospitals. Uh, some feel um, more like home. Um, and uh, and the the fourth category which they didn't find many of but which she suggests uh stephanie and her team suggests maybe the kind of ideal is what she calls a sort of flat share arrangement so you know people i think often what people want and if we're going to deliver kind of person-centered care often what people want is something that feels like home yeah um but that that might be difficult to deliver in a, um, a kind of residential setting just you know because of the nature of kind of the high levels of need that people now have when they go into residential care um, but sort of saying we don't know that doesn't necessarily mean we have to sort of go down the hospital or hotel route maybe we could look at more like I said that sort of uh, like a sort of student flat share I guess is the sort of model that I think uh, she was talking about um, and saying that you know that as I say there aren't many examples of that but that might be the kind of midpoint between something that feels very institutional and there's something that feels like a home. Yeah, I think that's probably 
one of the things that we hear a lot is that it's the smaller um you know homes that are getting more person-centered care but not you know that's not like a rule of thumb but you do hear a lot of um people saying that in a smaller home it's um, more personalized and also home care did you do any research around home care um specifically or does that have an effect on the quality of care do you think because uh, I, I suppose that's an, a next level up maybe where you are in somebody's home and so they're at home anyway so it would make sense but then obviously there's like issues with loneliness and isolation um so it's a different type of a challenge in uh, home care yeah so most of the work that i've done has been in home care um and uh so our micro enterprise project was looking at those very small organizations compared to larger and, and finding that um, the better outcomes are associated with the, the smaller services. Um, I mean, as, as I say, I think uh, the smaller organisations were better at being able to establish relationships and continuity of support amongst the same people, um, whereas the larger agencies relied on their kind of flexible staffing base, which meant they could move people around in, in a more agile way. And that makes, makes sense for potentially the sustainability of your business and for um, you know, for getting staff where you need them to be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you, that people are able to kind of develop those relationships. So I think, we, you know, generally the, I think some of the kind of quality issues are, uh, have been more evident in those larger services. Um, but obviously, you know, in a very difficult market, it may be that the larger services are more um, able to be more sustainable. I mean, I think there's a real mixed picture, you know, organisations are handing back contracts for home care. And I think they're from the small, medium and large providers. So, um, it's not evident that kind of one is surviving while the other isn't. And you've talked before a little bit about workforce um, and the challenges for social care workforce. Can you talk to us a little bit about your interest in that area? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done a huge amount on workforce, but I think there's, I guess, anybody who's interested in social care will see the huge issues that we've got in terms of workforce shortages. So in the recent project we've just finished around shaping care markets, um, the key uh, number one issue that providers told us was uh, was that was a problem for them was recruiting staff. Um, you know, so we would go one of the care homes we went into there. Um, you know, the care manager was talking about people repeatedly not turning up for interview, how hard it was to to fill posts, um, and um, we know that that's uh, that can particularly be an issue for home care agencies that if people are going into care work it can be more appealing to get to work in a care home where you're in a kind of a room where you've got a space where you've got colleagues you kind of you know got a more predictable workflow you haven't got to travel with all the issues of not not being paid for travel time so i think um you know, there's lots of issues that make home care in particular a very unappealing sector to work in um you know we know that people can do similar work in the nhs for uh, on a much better salary um, and so all these things make it very hard to to get uh, workers in social care. Um, and in terms of some of the projects that you're involved in at the moment, um, could you talk to us a little bit about what the Health Services Management Centre is um, and what it does and the kind of research that's uh, going on there at the moment? Yeah, so we do all sorts of, um, I guess, research around the health service. So we run the Leadership Academy programme for the National Health Service, uh, along with partners. Um, and lots of my colleagues do kind of evaluation work, particularly around health and social care integration. So working in local sites, look at look at uh, how far integration is, um, is being developed in a successful way. Um, 
couple of projects that I'm particularly involved in. Um, so there's the Shaping Care Markets one that we're just um, going to be reporting on in the new year. And that's been looking at um, the extent to which local authorities are fulfilling their market shaping duty under the Care Act 2014. Um, so uh, they were given this duty, um, quite an ill-defined duty, so we've been looking at some of the issues that they've been facing as they try and implement that. Um, and I guess the other one, uh, main one I'm working on currently, is an ESRC project um, linked to the University of Sheffield around care in the four nations of the UK. So, sort of 20 years on from devolution, what can we learn from the, the different paths in social care that we've seen taken by Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England? Um, both of those questions, those uh, projects are just so interesting. Um, I don't know how much you can talk about them, but in terms of the, the first one, Shaping Care Markets, I think that's a particularly interesting one because being in a few um, uh, commissioning meetings myself, you find that sometimes you don't get a lot of the guidance from local authorities about where they feel that markets should be going. Sometimes it's the opposite way and they say, well, market forces, you let us know what you can provide and we'll go from there. Um, are you seeing that there's a shift and that uh, local authorities are starting to give more guidance now? Uh, I think it varies and that's one I probably can't say too much about because that's out for, for peer review and we'll, we'll get signed off by the department. Um, but I guess one of the things we found was uh, how complex markets are even within a locality. Right. So if you go and sort of talk to a local authority about how you're how are you shaping your care market they'll say to you well which market do you mean you know for older people for working age adults you know do you mean uh, building based services or out in the community um do you mean for self-funders or for uh, people who are funded by the local authority those are all different markets mm. um and you know they're as they're trying kind of shape those which you know the market's generally not very amenable to being shaped so it's quite a challenge already um and they're also trying to do that uh, whilst also being influenced by local NHS commissioning practices. So some of the local authorities will say, well, we can't get places in care homes because they've been bought up by the NHS and the NHS pays better. They will pay a higher fee than we will. So, so we can't get the beds. Or they'll say, we can't get staff because we neighbour a borough that pays a higher hourly rate for uh, care than we do. So if people want a job in that sector, they'll just go go to the next door borough. Um, so you've not only got the kind of complexity of the sort of local authority market landscape, it's all these different kind of layers on top of it. So what we've been trying to do in that project is sort of disentangle some of that. Do you think it's too much of a big ask then that the, the Care Act has given local authorities to say that it has that duty? I think it's... Um, I suppose if we hadn't had such an austere financial context within which it could be implemented, um, then I think local authorities would have had a better shot at doing it. I think it's come at a very difficult time. Um, so although spend on social care has started to go up again, the allocations of money are, have been quite short term. So, you know, here's, here's a bit of money for this year, here's a bit of money for next year, actually, to build up kind of long term relationships with providers which might involve investment in building based services like extra care facilities for example um, you need a kind of sustained kind of long-term plan you need good relationships yeah. you need a kind of co-commissioning co-production with communities and I, my sense is that local authorities are living much more hand-to-mouth than that and that just means that this sort of the, the kind of short-term can I get somebody out of this hospital bed and into a care home yeah. takes precedence over the kind of can we plan this uh, to actually do this well yeah and I think like 
what you said about the different priorities for different areas of the health and care sector where you have the CCGs, you have the local authorities, then you have the providers and then the whole population that we're trying to serve is so diverse without that coordination and that's not supported through the regulations or the systems that we have at the moment it's really difficult to make it all joined up so be fantastic to hear what comes out of that work that you're doing um, and then the second piece on the four nations I know from doing a little bit of research on how co-production is um, approached in different areas it's been really interesting what for example Scotland is doing and um, some of the initiatives that they have are, are really almost a little bit sort of forward progressive looking from the outside I don't know if it's true from the inside if you're working there um, is there anywhere at the moment that you feel is ticking a lot of boxes from the perspective of people receiving services um yeah I mean I think we're we're learning some really interesting things by looking at the foreign comparisons so somewhere like Scotland has free personal care um, so you don't, if you're um, being looked after in your own home or in a residential setting, you don't pay for the personal care element of that. Um, and that's really interesting because that's one of the things that um, was in the Labour Party manifesto in the last election. Um, so it's something that people are looking at, at doing for England. So we've got this great kind of natural experiment in a way where we can say, well, let's see what they're doing in Scotland because they've had this now for several years. Um, and I think what's interesting about it is, uh, firstly, that it increased demand. Once you introduce, you start charging for people more, people want the service. So if you're already kind of struggling to meet your demand, that's something you're going to have to kind of take account of. The second was, uh, because of the, this is happening without uh, any sort of new investment uh, financially, um, it's having to be rationed. So although it's no longer being rationed financially, it's therefore only people who are at the very highest level of need are able to access it. So that means that money's maybe going into looking after them that might that could alternatively have been going into preventative services and early intervention. So you're kind of spending money at the kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of downstream, but you know, we all know in the Care Act says that we should be thinking much more about prevention and upstream interventions. And then the third thing is that people find it really confusing because it will pay for your personal care, but it won't pay for your hotel costs in a, a care home. So it doesn't pay for your like sort of board and lodgings. So, um, so the kind of, I mean, we have that clearly have that issue in England that people don't understand how care gets paid for. Um, and it's very confusing, but actually the sort of Scottish system hasn't got rid of that. It's, it's brought in kind of almost a different type of confusion between what gets paid for by the state and what doesn't. Um, so I think there's, all, there's quite a lot of learning there for, um, for if England were to go down that route, what some of the implications might be. Um, another area where Scotland's led the way is on um, regulation of the care workforce. So care workforce now regulated in Scotland um, and Wales is also moving in that direction. So that will, that's coming into force. You'll have to be registered to be a care worker and, um, in Wales as well. Um, and that's something which has been talked about in England. Uh, lots of um, people are very, in, very supportive of it. Um, but there is a sense in how far does it discourage people from going into the sector? Um, I think in Scotland, you can work for up to five years without going through the full registration process so there is some suggestion that people might leave at the end of that period to avoid the costs because there are some costs with registration um, and it also formalizes the care workforce which lots of people think is a great idea but if you think that personalization personal budgets are about um, 
sort of permitting a more informal workforce, more personal assistance, more ability to kind of employ maybe friends or family members and to, to sort of say to the people, the person using the service, it's about you, it's about your choice and control, then um, worker registration reduces that choice and control again. So that's another reason why it's been quite controversial. I wonder why it is that um, places like Wales and Scotland are taking up the idea of registration so much sooner than um, we are in, in England. Yeah, they're much smaller. They like, you know, they're, they're kind of, um, yeah. So I think the policy community is, is smaller. Um, it can work much more quickly. Um, you know, so if you, you know, the population of, of England is sort of 10 times the size. Yeah. Um, so scale wise, it's very, very different. Um, I think in England, we've been stuck in this limbo while we've been waiting for a green paper, which has meant that nothing else significant in relation to care has happened um and i suppose we're all we've all been kind of holding our breath waiting for this kind of new intervention uh in the meantime being obviously very very concerned and time taken up with, uh, with brexit and all of its implications and so i think kind of big issues like care worker regulation have just haven't been able to get the airspace in terms of so we're the other side of the election um, in terms of your wish list, do you have one or two things that you would like the new, uh, newly appointed government to concentrate on in 2020 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's one wish, but it's such a big one that I think I feel like it would take up like space for like one or two, which is uh, we need a kind of new settlement, a new kind of beverage. We need a new understanding of who will pay for care, how that will be funded across the life course, what the distribution will be kind of between the generations. Um, you know, we've clearly got a system which is not fit for purpose. The amount needed just to keep a kind of, you know, the current, the billions that are needed just to keep the current system on the road when the current system is really not great, mm. suggests that, you know, these kind of influxes of cash that we've been having are not the way to go. We need a sort of back to first principles kind of approach. Um, the chance of that happening seems seems so very low, unfortunately, because I think it does require cross-party consensus. And we know that any time recently the politician has tried to kind of say, let's think differently about how we fund social care, that they've been so effectively torn apart by the press and the other political parties that you can understand why people don't want to go there. So, you know, we don't want another kind of dementia tax or death tax or, you know, these things are so easy to critique. So we need to be looking at other places like Japan, Germany, who have kind of grasped this nettle of long-term care funding and think well if other places have done it you know can we learn something from how they've done it and move in that direction is it just a case of um parties and uh, politicians being a little bit more brave with this and not so worried about scaring off the electorate in fact we're talking about the issues around health and social care so much over the last two years more than i've ever known it being on the news it's incredible um is the awareness that there now maybe it's time to just take bull by the horns and just do what you know might seem very unpopular whether it's raising taxes or you know delivering a different kind of way do you think this is the time to kind of push for that change 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Boris Johnson's got a big majority, but if you can't be brave at that time, then when can you be brave? Um, yeah. You know, we've had, we've had sort of governments with slim majorities for the last few years when uh, you're more, much more constrained in what you can do. So I certainly think now's the time. Um, you know, I think talking about um, some sort of hypothecated tax, for example, could be something which we could get into. Um, but I think, and you can see this in the way that um, Boris Johnson and um, uh, some of the people around him talk about this, they're really unsure about how they deal with things like people's sense of attachment to their home. So once you start talking about, well, people, will people have to sell their homes uh, for care, then you're immediately kind of pushing buttons, which, which um, I think uh, become very difficult. So it's, I think it's kind of having bravery around some, some of those conversations and recognizing that, um, you know, we do have to talk about, the, about people's homes as potentially sources of funding for care or thinking about kind of more redistributive approaches or moving more in the kind of NHS type direction in terms of how it's funded. Just before we go on to Cactus' questions, what's the hypothecate, hypothecated tax? So that's where you pay a tax, but it's for, it's for a particular um, item. So it can't just be put into the general government budget. So, um, yeah, it's exactly. So it's a ring fence thing. So I believe Gordon Brown did something similar where he, I think he put a, a 1p on, on national insurance for the health service um, earlier this decade when he was um um in power so i think you know it's been it has been done before but it's it's i think it's a way of sort of building trust because people don't kind of think oh i'm going to pay that and then it's going to go on something i don't want yeah you know you're able to sort of um yeah to ring fence it yeah that's helpful thank you um so yes in terms of cactus questions i don't really have that many for you just the the one that's because it's brexit brexit is going to be done by the end of January presumably um, what do you think might be the challenges for your area of research that Brexit may or may not bring well I think there's clear workforce issues I guess that's really the big key in relation to Brexit so we you know we were already I think clear that people are discouraged from uh, coming to work in the UK if we put in a kind of skills or earnings threshold then that might make it very difficult for people to come in and work in care where the you know the pay is low and that's not that's not traditionally been a kind of skilled sector um, in terms of qualifications um, although care is not um, the sort of proportion of the workforce um, from the EU is not particularly high compared to say hospitality industry um, I think when you've got a very a sector which is very kind of uh, precariously balanced in terms of the sustainability of lots of the providers and then in certainly in some parts of the country just you know making workforce uh, or making workforce shortages even more profound I think will be very problematic so um, I think yeah that's clearly where, where Brexit is likely to have its first effects. Yeah and in terms of the um, research the projects that you're involved in at the moment the ones that we talked about um, shaping care markets and care in the four nations when can we expect those to be published? So the shaping care markets were, will be out in the spring uh, that's a bit vague but I guess around Easter time hopefully we just need to get to get that signed off um, so uh, yeah we'll, we'll be making that available soon and the uh, care in the four nations uh, we're part way through that so that'll be more into I think 2021 um, before we've got our kind of final findings although we'll be we'll, we will be um, sharing the learning along the way um, during next year. Brilliant and just finally for anyone who's trying to do research co-productively do you have any tips 
for doing it well? Uh, gosh, lots of things I could say. I mean, I think you have to resource it. Mm. And that can be one of the really difficult things. So I would say go to the Involve website. There's a huge amount of really useful materials on there about kind of how you do it well, but also about how you need to pay people. Um, you know, people, you can't expect people to give their time for free. Um, so I think making sure that, you, that people are kind of understand the commitments that they're making through, through uh, taking that approach. Um, and yeah, there's lots of, of good practice out there, guidance, and, and certainly involved is often where we go if we're, kind of, if we're looking for kind of making sure that we're doing things the right way.